Welcome to a new episode of Roll for Enterprise. Joined this week by our usual co-hosts, Zach and Mike, but also by a very special guest, uh, Matt Harper. So Matt is an ex-colleague and I would say a friend. Uh, we met at a previous company, but now he is working for Nylas, N-Y-L-A-S, as the VP of Marketing. He's doing global marketing there for this API-first developer platform. It sounds really, really cool. And so we wanted to have him on the show and hear a little bit more about that. Uh, so Matt, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, thank you guys. I appreciate you uh, inviting me to the show this morning and hope uh, all the listeners are doing well. My name is Matthew Harper, as uh, as Dominic just, uh, just shared, and uh, I run marketing over at a uh, Series B venture-backed uh, startup in San Francisco, California uh, called Nihilus. And what Nihilus does is Nihilus provides developers with a single platform for integrating with data across all providers and platforms um, that, uh, that, that basically touch email, calendar, and address books data. So you can think of it at a very high level as kind of a Twilio or a Stripe for inbox data. And the reason that we focus our uh, attention to these uh, to these channels is because of the rich data store that is associated with them. When you think about the contents of your own personal inbox, uh, you may have anything from uh, health records to um, privileged communications with an attorney to financial records, all of this stuff that you're never going to transact over a channel like SMS or WhatsApp or, uh, or, or chat for that matter. And we kind of believe that within that rich data store lies uh, a, a lot of really um, great possibilities for developers to build productivity and communications workflows within their apps. And so we provide unprecedented access through a single point of integration for all of that data in a way that is fully secure and compliant with GDPR, HIPAA, FINRA, you know, any type of governing uh, body or, um, you know, means of compliance. We abstract away all of the complexity and risk of, of working um, with that data and, and just make it very simple for developers to um, access and leverage that data and do as they wish within their applications. See, I love that because there's all this data that's otherwise dark that you can't really make use of. But previously, your alternatives would have been a give all of it to one entity and trust them, I guess. <laughs> and this way, you have a much better way of uh, of exposing the functionality without exposing all the data. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's kind of key to the value there is you don't want all the data in many cases, right? Because the data is a liability or it's just not useful or it would be unfriendly to your end users to access and store that data, um, you know, without their permission or, you know, for no, for no express purpose. So we give developers all the uh, you know flexibility that they need to be able to make really smart decisions about the data that they access, how they store it, where they store it, for how long they store it, what they do with it, um, what they obscure versus what they uh, you know make uh, you know make visible. And um, there really is no other technology on the market that that behaves in quite this way. You can, to your earlier point, uh, Dominic, you can you can absolutely build a bridge directly to the to the Gmail API or directly to 
exchange, for instance, but um, your mileage may vary, uh, especially in terms of the uh, level of complexity it takes to actually technically execute what is otherwise a fairly conceptually simple uh, thing that you would like to do, get data from point A to point B. Um, when you're dealing with email in particular, you're looking at 47 years worth of changing communications protocols that you would have to wrap your head around. And in my experience, at least in, in speaking with most practitioners, is none of them roll out of bed in the morning I'm super excited to go and tackle that challenge themselves. So hence why we exist. Welcome to the show, Matt. I think when you talk about email and productivity, you're speaking uh, Zach's music. Um, but one of the things that everybody always uh, wonders about APIs and, and what you're looking at is is the security aspect of it. So how do you how do you kind of calm those worries of of some of the folks out there who are concerned? Yeah, it really is the number one driver to adoption. So I'm being a marketing guy, but but trying not to be a shill at the same time. I understand, uh, you know, the uh, the risk inherent in talking with the person that owns the website. But um, I digress. You know, we've done a, a lot of market research, and it really does validate your, your point, Mike, which is that security is 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 primary right when deciding whether or not to uh, adopt a solution like ours and you know the short answer the cheeky answer is you put a bunch of uh, you put a bunch of uh, logos up on your website that shows that you've got your security uh, your SOC 2 you know type 2 certified your GDPR your CCPA and so on and so forth but really it, it, it's about documenting this with uh, you know, explicit and exquisite detail and, um, you know, making your security architecture um, easily viewable uh, by prospects and, and, and just coming um, prepared with all of the all of the proof that, you know, you as a platform has have gone through and continuously go through because um, as many of your listeners might be, you know, well aware, um, it, it's, it's, it's a never ending process, really, you're talking about certification um, occurring every year just for um, Google OAuth, for instance, right? So, so we document all that, we make it all publicly available. And it's oftentimes the first thing that somebody is uh, looking for after they, um, after they just test the, uh, the base API and, and, and see that it works. Welcome to the show. I and This is very intriguing to me. I'm um, uh, anti-email, just so you know. I think it's uh, very counterproductive. And uh, it's No it's one's the, ever heard that on this show before, Zach. No one's ever heard that. Yeah, well, it's the vein of my existence at, at times, to be quite honest. How would this help somebody like me? And, and can you give us a, just a, you know, what does your typical customer makeup look like? Yeah, so I, I will answer the the latter first because it's probably the quicker answer. The customer makeup is extremely broad and horizontal, right? But I would say that you know let's contextualize it around B two B SaaS companies that are serving an audience of corporate agents that are heavily reliant upon that uh, terrible communications channel that is email, right? So um, lawyers, uh, healthcare practitioners, sales and marketing people. Um, real estate agents, uh, recruiters, oh, you know, all of these types of workers are managing their day-to-day -day with external parties where it's not like you can't create, create a shared Slack channel, but realistically, are you going to do that around um, scheduling, uh, you know, walkthroughs of a, uh, of, of a property if you are a real estate agent for Zillow, for instance? Unlikely. So CRM type of applications that we integrate with most commonly are, are CRMs, applicant tracking systems, human capital management systems are very big for us, legal tech, financial tech, insurance tech. Um, there is a lot of activity with kind of traditional enterprise companies because 
they are relying upon email because of uh, really the security aspect. Um, you know, as I joked earlier, you're unlikely to order your healthcare records through through you know uh, uh, WhatsApp, for instance, right? A lot of these channels great for you know our day to day communications as consumers, you know, talking with our friends or family members and so on and so forth. But when it comes down to business. Email kind of is the lingua franca of that space. And so how it would help you if you hate email is it gets you out of email. Sold one license to <laughs> Mr. Zach. <laughs> I was just thinking that. I am on it. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, if, 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 if you know, you are using a, a you know, a, a platform like Slack, like we all do, you know, in our day to day, the ability to connect your Slack account, for instance, to your email account and you know, dynamically pull over attachments, for instance, and structure them all together in one place where you can, uh, you can access them is absolutely the type of use case that we that we power. And so, you know, while we focus on email right now as a uh, as a technological problem to solve, by no way, by no means are we sitting there trying to be the cool kid getting everybody back into, you know, Lotus Notes, uh, quite the opposite, we, 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 we view the opportunity with productivity and collaboration software, to be as great as the builders of productivity and collaboration software tout it to be. And we really are the infrastructure layer that they adopt and use in order to bridge the gap across these, uh, you know, these, all of these channels, um, email calendar and, and contacts books being some of the highest walled gardens out there. Um, and, you know, thus rife for, uh, for some disruption, uh, technologically speaking. So you mentioned developers there, and that was one of the things that I wanted to drill into a little bit more. So there's this trend, which some people call combinatorial innovation, which is basically the idea of composable software, building software up uh, like Lego bricks. And that's enabled by the fact that it's easy these days to plug things together, plug services together like Nylas uh, using their APIs. And so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You also don't have to have these huge accretions of data, as you said, because you have to give the same data over and over again to each of these monoliths. So do you have any thoughts about the development of that market from the inside, uh, what that looks like, what people are doing uh, with your API? Yeah, and absolutely. And it, it's it's a it's a great it's a great place to take the conversation. I think it's a, it's a really fascinating secular trend that we've seen over the course of, you know, call it the last decade, right? It's really the API economy, right? That's in essence what we're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think it touches upon a lot of other revolutions that have occurred, um, you know, within technology over the course of the last decade. I mean, not the least of which was really, you know, the the lift and the shift to the cloud, right? And the advent of, you know, your AWSs and your Azures. Um, we all remember, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the software is eating the world blog post, you know, and the Wired article and, you know, every company is becoming a software company. I had an occasion to refer to that today and I manfully restrained myself and didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm using it to I'm using it to make a, a poor joke, but yes, <laughs> it's a tired point at this point, right? But it also was proven to be true. And during that stage of the software revolution, the limiting factor in the model were developers themselves. Meaning there weren't enough of them. You can't you couldn't hire enough of them quick enough. Um, every company's scrabbling to become you know more software 
um, oriented, defined, uh, you know, ideal, you know, all of these, you know, however it is that you want to, you know, really um, uh, kind of look at it and spin it. And they're all, you know, surging towards this limited trove of talent. And what do you get as a result? I mean, you get in San Francisco Bay Area, you know, software engineer level one at Google making $285,000 a year, and nobody will even ask them to come to work because they're afraid of offending them. You know, that that is a level of like scarcity that we saw on the market that was that was fully, you know, uh, oriented around uh, just, you know, supply and demand, uh, you know, economics. And that started to change. And, and, you know, I have the belief and there are others that have the belief as well. And probably many others that, you know, think that we're all blathering idiots, um, that this is only going to continue to accelerate in the sense that as you look at some of the tech titans out there, your Facebooks, your Googles, your Apple, so to speak, they're no longer requiring a, a CS degree in order to join their engineering departments. You have to demonstrate aptitude. You have to, you know, you take tests. You have to whiteboard. You have to do all of that. But by no means do you need to be an MIT degree with an MS in, in computer science. When I started my career, um, I, I wouldn't even be able to walk through the doors of any of those buildings because I had a liberal arts degree, and it was like the um, it was like a, 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 a another sequel to Revenge of the Nerds, where there was no way they were going to let somebody like me who partied their way through college in on all the fun. They were going to make the billions, and uh, you know I was going to you know drive drive you know drive a used Honda Accord for the rest of my life, and so so everything has changed there culturally within technology, and it's become a lot more democratized. As a result, what you have is you have, um, you know, you have engineers that are coming into the market that went to, you know, uh, a Hackbright, you know, or, you know, did online learning and the equivalent of maybe an associate's degree worth of formalized training, sometimes probably not even that. And they're coming into enterprises and they are, you know, they are building software and they are building solutions. I think this is an enormously positive thing for our society and for our economy, um, but it is a, a, a sea change, I think, to put it lightly. Um, as a result, what you get is you get a lot of broad generalists. You know, they're not they're not touching bare metal, so to speak. They're working in abstracted languages like Go and Python, and they're reliant upon this software supply chain, which starts with you know the infrastructure infrastructure of the cloud, um, and extends onward through you know APIs. And, you know, increasingly things like, you know, out of the box UI UX components that allow you to very quickly build a thing, a uh, simple feature, a common use case within your application without ever actually having to become an expert at the code level around much of any of that. And all that has done has increased the velocity in, of, of, of software development, and it has increased the uh, level and degree by which companies can compete with one another. And so um, those are all positives in the sense that I don't imagine that anybody's going to try to, you know, roll the DeLorean backwards 50 years and, uh, and, 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 and turn the world back into a place where it was harder and more expensive and slower uh, to build software. And so we're really betting on this trend continuing and, you know, uh, other companies in the space, you know, I see doing, you know, not entirely dissimilar things and thinking in terms of how can they expand across that software um, supply chain or that stack? And how can you move from, you know, just connecting data to doing more off the shelf slash out of the box kind of use case driven software solutions at any 
engineer with, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a rudimentary uh, understanding, you know, level one, level two, the, the highest in terms of training, I could quickly start to work with and, and drive a result. You know, for, when I look at it from a practitioner side, like I sit at, and, you know, you, you have developers who are going to call an API here, an API there, and, you know, obviously it gets a lot easier for them, their job, and, you know, whether it's easier laziness or whatever, we, we can argue, right? But, to be honest, how how should companies like measure risk of using one API versus another? Because I, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of people using free stuff, free bases out there, and and all this. And like, how do you measure the risk of it like disappearing and then breaking like a major business component that you've now built? Right. It, I mean, it, to me, that is something that is often overlooked and. I don't know. Is it is it something that I should consider, shouldn't consider? I, I would absolutely recommend that that you do as a practitioner. And I mean, you know, I've seen this throughout my career running startups. You know, time and time again, like one of the biggest one of the biggest challenges when you're selling into an enterprise um, is really you know proving to that user and those buyers that you're still going to be around a couple of years from now, especially if you're venture backed, right? You know, they really are concerned, like, is this company going to go out of business? Are we going to adopt something that is strategic um, or so deeply operational that we couldn't survive without it? And then are we in term, you know, in turn slaves to these vendors? And, and I think it's a very real risk. I, I would, I would start by, by being very skeptical, free anything. Um, now free is a great uh, marketing strategy to get people to use your, your product and remove, you know, friction. But if it's a free forever kind of uh, solution, I mean, I, I would, be skeptical myself because I don't know just how anybody can can survive, you know, in that space unless they're doing it simply for promotional marketing reasons. From a more technical perspective, you know, I, I really do believe, especially when it comes to, you know, things like APIs, like, you know, I, I believe practitioners should be, you know, testing for P90, you know, for instance, I think that they should be demanding uh, SLA's reliability uptime that is no less than one one nine, ideally two. Um, in many cases, you're seeing you know uh, vendors start to go all the way up to three and into academia. Um, I, I would I would make sure that that was in the contract with anything that I purchased because you know it's uh, reliability is key, security is number one, reliability is number two, right? So um, and you know I think there are you know for instance we just we wrote a, a, a blog post the other day um, that was comparison that was a comparative to some other technology in the market where we did you know a deep uh, performance evaluation that really showed things like uh, you know. Uh, what kind what you could expect in terms of potential latency and anything else that would potentially cause you know uh performance issues within your application uh you know uh, at all and I, I i'm of the mind that all vendors should make that information you know the good the bad and the ugly um public and and available for for research and consumption because you know to your earlier point there's it, it's a big decision when you decide that you're going to build your software on top of something um, like an API service you need to be assured that you know the table stakes um, availability and security and you know uh, is this thing going to be updated and you know introduce breaking change into my environment all of that is addressed before um, 
before integrating. It's just a completely different view of the world uh, compared to the monolithic software development practices we used to have. Between the openness of the APIs themselves and the openness of the information around the service that they enable, as you just described, it's a complete sea change. Well, it's funny, Dominic. I mean, we, we actually have people that are now taking the technology and, and doing self-hosted via Kubernetes. Because it's, there is still something about this old world that is very um, appealing uh, to others. Because you know there is the level of control. You know uh, when you're when you're kind of in a, more of an on-prem environment, um, SaaS investors hate that stuff, right? Because they like everything to be in the cloud and for you know businesses to run in a certain way. But the reality is is that um, I think the market really swung the pendulum pretty, you know, in a pretty extreme manner. And we're actually starting to come back to the center a little bit. And you're starting to see, you know, a little more of, um, um, you know, hybrid kind of approach to these things. Oh, very much agreed. And we were talking about this just recently in the context of the acquisition of Chef. The point that we made that we settled on was that the interesting bits of the conversation around IT and what IT enables have moved on from that sort of level, the infrastructure level. And so people can make their infrastructure choices based on what they need. And in many cases, that's going to be, I don't want to mess with servers. That's not my core competency. That's not a skill. Uh, it's not even something I, I want to learn. And in other cases, they're going to be, I have very good and valid reasons that I want to run on-prem and I don't want to hear anything else about that. But those are going to be decisions that are happening at a level that is far removed from what people are actually trying to do with the platform. It's no longer the cutting edge, uh, so to speak. And that's not to say that it's not important. It's just it's not the most important thing anymore. The interface has moved several layers of abstraction up the stack. You know, it's it's funny because when you think like container, ser uh, serverless, multi-cloud, you know, you think that's kind of the hard stuff today, but I think on-prem in the future will be the hard stuff to do, not the container, serverless, multi-cloud. And I see APIs as the fuel to light that fire. Am, am I right? Am I wrong? I mean, wh what do you think about it, Matt? I think it's a bold prediction, but I, I personally think that you're right. Um, now, I think that it's going to come with, uh, you know, it, that's going to come as a shakeup to many companies because the economics of on-prem and, you know, what does that truly mean from a business perspective, from a support perspective, from a technology perspective? That is a, a shift that I think is going to um upset and frustrate <laughs> certain yeah. uh, certain companies that are out there that have predicated their entire existence on on things working you know around uh you know a, a certain set a set of uh you know subscription practices i think to you know to to put it very generally but from a technology perspective i think that that's absolutely true and and we're already seeing it and uh, you know it's something that we and nihilus are um you know open-minded and open-hearted about, I guess, in the, in the sense that, you know, we're already accommodating those needs because we have so many customers that are in highly regulated or they're just naturally paranoid um, <laughs> segments and states. Um, I, I think as, you know, Dominic and I, you know, we've, we've worked together in the past and, and served many of those customers as well. And for all of the, you know, for all of the bleeding edge capabilities that your technology can, uh, can provide at the end of the day, um, the ability to have that level of control configurability, 
um, visibility even is so vitally important for uh, for some practitioners that I think um, I think you know companies are setting themselves up for disruption. You know, be cloud first, absolutely, right? Like that is a fine strategy to uh, to pursue. There's a reason why everybody's doing it. But, you know, to think that the users are going to, you know, completely, you know, turn away from, you know, self-hosted on-prem or some hybrid thereof, especially for really mission critical uh, services, I think is, um, I think there's intellectual folly there. Yeah. And I, I want to add to that. I think, I think there's a misconception sometimes between SaaS and cloud. I, I think, you know, this whole notion of push everything to the cloud is, um, it's not viable for a lot of companies. I mean, these companies have 20, 40 years, you know, of legacy applications that are, that they're running on still. So this notion of let's just pick it up and move it. I do think this is where APIs come into play though. How do we connect both these worlds? Cause they're going to still have to be connected for a while. And we know that and the cloud companies know that that's why they're pushing their on-prem I mean, look at their earnings. A lot of their growth is, is the on-prem whether it's Azure stack and our AWS diving in with outposts and other solutions. So I think it's important to call that out. I mean, this is where I think the APIs and, a lot of this stuff's really going to come into play. This whole cloud-first notion, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big proponent of that. I mean, you have to leverage cloud in certain situations, but I think, you know, you start in the, <clears throat> excuse me, you start in the far right, which is SaaS, whatever you can put, you know, leverage a SaaS model. But this whole cloud-first, I, 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 you know, there have been several outages recently. I mean, Slack had a big outage two days ago. They were just concentrating on their shoes. That's the issue. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, but, you know, it's seriously, I again, it's... Um, you know, it's just this, everybody thinks, well, just go to cloud, just go to cloud. And a lot of these organizations, it's, you know, you can't, you can't do that. 80% was, I think I read 80% of companies architecture is legacy. So I think this is where this API, what you're talking about, Mike, I agree with, right? This is where this API uh, driven economy will, will step in. Well, yeah, because Zach, it's the, you know, it's the connective tissue, right? And so connect what to what? Well, really, whatever you want is, you know, from a conceptual perspective, um, entirely supportable, right? And I, I think, you know, uh, knowing you and your background, you know, especially on the, uh, on the analyst side, you know better than anybody else, um, the tolerance really, especially especially um, at the enterprise level for companies to kind of go all in on cloud. And yeah, I mean, it, it makes for a great clickable headline to say that, you know, on-prem is dead and everything is, you know, shifting upwards into the cloud. But the reality is, is, is that, you know, a good portion of those environments remain on-premise and are going to remain on-premise and that, you know, APIs as the connective tissue between um, services uh, in between elements of your 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 software, your stack, your business, um, absolutely, you know, can and and will be utilized to help you know bridge those gaps and, and bring everything together. And I think you look at you know a company like MuleSoft, for instance, as being you know a, a great example of of um, of a company that that is that is really thought in that way. I don't know if you guys have any any opinions on. On, on, on that vendor and, and how they fit within the, uh, you know, the conceptual framework of, uh, of um, you know, the, the software of, of tomorrow that we're, that we're talking about, but they, they stand out to me as a, as a representative example. No, yeah, definitely. I don't have strong opinions either way on MuleSoft specifically, but I think it's a real trend that APIs abstracting away the differences between infrastructure options are going to be key to a lot of trends. So one last question from my side, one 
topic that we've returned to several times already uh, over the course of the podcast is what does the future of uh, development look like? We often hear about you know these low codes, no codes, uh, robotic process automation uh, toolkits that are taking over various business processes and automating them. All the focus there is always on day one. How quickly can I capture the process, automate it, and never think about it again. As an old ops person, that immediately sets off my spidey sense. Wait a minute, what do you mean never think about it again? That's going to need to be maintained, to be updated, uh, to be patched, to be managed, to be versioned. Uh, all sorts of things that you know we used to think about in the context of, I need to keep a version of a text file somewhere on a file system. And nowadays, with distributed applications developed in these new ways, that's getting a whole lot more complex to to think about, to reason about. And what do you see people doing with these types of tools to address that question? Well, it's a great question, Dom. And it's, you know, the, the, the answer is, I think, really centers around like, so RPA, low code, no code, all of this stuff, you know, we view it as kind of adjacent to the space that we're in right now in, in many different ways, because uh, it's kind of a natural progression up from, you know, just the API layer into, you know, additional, you know, call it developer productivity, um, uh, the developer productivity space, right? And where it's all about increasing the velocity by which, you know, software is developed, um, similar to, you know, what's driving, you know, the API uh, revolution, you know, the, the, you know, make it easier, quicker, less frictionless for, you know, developers of, you know, all states and sizes, you know, to, to come in and, and, and rapidly have an impact on the development chain. I think it really comes down to the application itself and what it is that we are trying to automate and what is it that that is that we can afford to have be low code modular building block just drop it in the thing and make it happen versus the versus things that we would not want to want to want that type of technology to touch and so it's a tough prediction to make. I truly believe that those spaces are heating up uh, for a reason and that companies will make the decision, um, you know, gun at the head maybe at times to adopt the thing that works on day one and allows them to bring a competitive capability or feature set to market um, with, you know, with a high velocity over that, which is going to actually um, make IT uh, happy, or maybe even their own legal departments happy. I think there's going to be plenty of uh, plenty of breaking points that are introduced into companies and applications as a result of these technologies. But I do believe that they are they are, they are they are both nascent and also here to here to stay. That's a fantastic answer. It's certainly given me something to think about. And yeah, I know several of us can think of uh, products that's over-indexed on power users and not enough on day one experience onboarding new users. As it happens, I actually published a blog post about that today. So I'll link that in the show notes. Shameless promotion there. <laughs> so this is interesting to me because this this has been a blind spot for data. I mean, this everything we're talking about, the email, everything else. And uh, we all know data is everything right now. So uh, to me, it, it closes a big loop, a uh, big gap, I should say. Um, 
do you store the data? Do you even see the data? I know you said it's encrypted, but is it stored anywhere? Is this anything you do around uh, any kind of algorithms that you, you provide or you offer any kind of machine learning um, functionality? Yes, yes, there is AI and machine learning functionality running in the back end. To the storage question, um, we have this concept of kind of selective sync and abridged sync, right? Which is really the um, ability to define what data is stored and where it's stored, right? And so with enterprise customers, for instance, there is absolutely the option to manage your own storage. This is the uh, kind of, uh, we'll call it self hosted, you know, via Kubernetes kind of on-prem like uh, deployment that takes everything and puts it, you know, in your own, you know, owned databases. Most of our customers actually prefer that we store it for them in AWS. Now that is in, you know, that is in private cloud for them. We don't obviously do anything that's public and we don't keep anything on on our end necessarily. So um, that is that is kind of the, the, the deployment options that we currently have. Um, again, it really it depends upon the type of customer or the type of developer which they're going to um, which they're going to choose. From a purely commercial perspective, we don't mark up storage, so it really doesn't matter one way or the other to us whether you decide to utilize you know whether you know you pay us and then we pay your AWS bill for you or or you know the the fact that you can just kind of do it all yourself. There's no real savings from the upfront perspective as to whichever um, whichever solution you, you you decide basically whichever enterprise customer you're you're dealing with they, they have to make these decisions and they have to know kind of based on the privacy they're comfortable with what they want to do or not do right I mean it's it's really up to them. Really, I mean, it's about accommodating. My perspective is it's about accommodating the fact that what you just said, Mike, is, is I think the most customer-friendly way to go about doing it, right? I mean, there are absolutely some com- companies that are, you know, I, I would also say, especially the earlier stage that they are, we have we get adoption before people have moved into production um, many times, right? Because it is infrastructure um, in the sense that it's it's powering this mission critical thing that if I'm building a CRM and I don't have, for instance, access to interaction data between uh, salespeople and their prospects, meaning when did the meeting occur? What was the last email chain? You know, all that stuff that kind of makes sales as a uh, as a function um, function. Then you know we're dead in the water. So so they will come to us. Uh, you know, the the company that's going to build the next Salesforce.com will come and adopt Nihilus before they've ever even put a single user on their platform. And in those cases, they're usually pretty breathless because they're you know maybe a 20, 30 person operation and they're looking at the technical complexity of, you know, building their own solution and, oh my God, no, why would I ever do that? Please somebody help. And the, you know, they're not, they don't want to futz around with, you know, trying to figure out, you know, data storage and, you know, the um, assurances that, you know, we are able to give uh, on the security and compliance side, which, which I believe are many are more than sufficient for most customers to just say, yeah, that's fine. And especially when you do a detailed analysis of, you know, this is what, 
you, what it would look like if you hosted it yourself versus, you know, if, if we host your data, if, you know, if we store your data for you. Um, and the fact that there's really no commercial or financial impact to either sides, and they're more than happy to just say, yeah, please, you know, go and, and, and run with it. But then you talk to a bank and, you know, hell no, right? So just having that flexibility, I think, in your technology is what is most important. Yeah, if I had one takeaway here, I think if you if you look back, people were scared to choose like best of breed products and because the integration was really a nightmare. I think what's happened now, and so they would pick a suite, right? Because it's all integrated and someone's worrying about that for you. Now I think people are back at this best of breed concept because APIs have made it so much easier. So I, I think there's going to, there's going to end up being much more competition in the, in the software space because of, the, the the ground level changes happening here. I, I don't know if you agree with that, Matt, or not. I violently agree with it, Mike. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, so many more niches getting unlocked. Okay, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. And one thing that it left me with, certainly, was uh, you mentioned the Mark Andreessen quote, uh, Software's Eating the World, which is from 2011. Uh, so already nearly a decade back now. One thing that uh, I prefer from 2011 was a different quote from Steve Jobs. So he was the one who talked about living at the intersection of technology and the liberal arts. And I like that thought that you had about what this will enable, this type of technology will enable in that sense. I'm sure we'll have occasion to see how that trend plays out uh, in the future. In the meantime, if anyone wants to follow up with Nylas, you can find them at nylas.com, N-Y-L-A-S.com or on Twitter as Nylas. Uh, it's nice and easy. Matt is, of course, a social media refusenik, so you won't find him on, on Twitter, but don't hold, him, hold it against him. Work-life balance. It requires uh, requires no Twitter for Matt, but you can always find me on LinkedIn, and I'm more than happy to uh, chat with anybody that found this interesting and would like to uh, challenge or press me further. Thank you, Matt. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity. It was, a, it was a fun chat. Thanks so much. Same here. Until next time. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.